together. Father, we pray this morning that you would make us rigorously biblical. Lord, we pray that here at Kenwood Baptist Church at Victory Memorial, you would enable us to believe and understand everything that you have taught in your word. And Lord, we pray for Tyler and Jenna as they go out from us, that you would cause their hearts to be gripped by your word, that you would give them clarity as they seek to take this message, this good news of the salvation that you have accomplished through the Lord Jesus to another part of the world. And we pray that you would enable them to do exactly what your people have always done. So we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to think through what that is and what it looks like and how to do it. And we pray that you would bless it. We pray that you would do just what Jesus prayed when he said that your word is truth. And he prayed that you would sanctify your people by your truth, by your word. So Lord, we pray for your help this morning and we pray that your spirit would fill in the gaps left by all the things that mere words cannot accomplish. I pray, Lord, that the spirit would would overcome my inadequacy. And I pray, Lord, that, that you would make us people who know you, people who understand the scriptures, people who are eager to embrace everything the scriptures teach. So Lord, we ask that you would come now and renew us and transform us. And we pray in particular that you would be preparing Tyler for the work that you've called him to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, why do we do what we do here when we gather? Why do we do what we do as a church? Um, This morning, we are ordaining uh, Tyler to the work that the Lord has called him to. I wonder if you've asked the question, why don't we ordain all the people that leave Kenwood to go pastor somewhere else? There's a kind of uh, loosely applied policy at work. And and before I tell you what that policy is, I want to tell you why we're trying to follow that policy. It has to do with what what I prayed. We are trying to do exactly what we see in the scriptures. No more, no less. That doesn't mean that we want to try to reconstruct the the outfits that we think maybe the apostles wore or something like that. It doesn't mean that we're trying to uh, reconstruct the architecture of how their buildings looked. It does mean that what we see the Bible indicating Jesus and his followers did, that's what we're trying to do in, in all the particulars of it. So in general... If, if somebody leaves here to go and pastor at an existing church, we, we, we see what's happening there as that church receiving a pastor. And we see it as that church's responsibility, that church's opportunity to set that man apart and to, to ordain him to that work. But in this case, and in some other cases that we've had, we're, we're sending some out, someone out where there isn't an existing church. Uh, And and in this case, we're sending a man and his family to another part of the world to be a church planter in that place. 
And so for that reason, uh, we are ordaining, we're setting him apart to this work. And I think a case could be made that what we're doing here this morning is exactly what we see the apostles do in Acts 13. And, and I'm just going to read you a bit here. If you want to follow along, you can. Acts 13, uh, 1 through 3, Luke writes, There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the, the Lord has indicated that Saul and Barnabas are to leave the church in Antioch and to go do what they're doing in Antioch in a new place. And we're going to consider in a moment exactly how Paul and the other apostles went about doing that work. And, and that's kind of like what we're doing uh, here with Tyler this morning. The Lord has prompted his heart and he has felt led to join a great work of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth in fulfillment of the commission of Jesus when he commanded his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. And so this morning, I'm going to preach this sermon where we're going to address these things and then we're going to, uh, the elders are going to come up here and the Moorhearts are going to come to the front. We're going to lay hands on them and pray for them and then we're going to send them off, uh, imitating what we've seen there in Acts chapter 13. So um, what, what I want to do here this morning uh, is, is we're going to start from 1 Peter chapter 5, and uh, really uh, a, a good portion of this is probably going to be considering um, what all of the apostles seem to have done. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever thought about, about this. Um, you know, James didn't decide, I think I'll go to uh, Jerusalem and start a school. And, and Peter didn't decide, I think what I'll do is, is go off to the ends of the earth and start a leadership academy. And, and you know, Paul, Paul didn't decide, maybe I'll go to Athens and, and imitate um, Socrates and Plato. None of them did that. And, and when you look at the New Testament, what you see remarkably is that they all seem to have done the same thing. So look with me at, at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Peter writes, so I exhort, now Peter is writing to these churches, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse um, um, 1, he writes to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, a whole bunch of different places, scattered all through the world. And even if you're not, even if you're in a sense within the Greco-Roman Empire, you're crossing boundaries from one people group to another as you go from Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, all the rest. So Peter is writing this letter that's going to be sent to all these different people groups. And look what he says there in verse 1. I exhort the elders among you. Peter knows wherever there's a church, there are going to be elders. And essentially what we're doing this morning is we are recognizing that the Holy Spirit has raised Tyler up to be an elder in a church that he goes to plant across, across boundaries, across geographical uh, space. Uh, Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you. And then let me, let me draw your attention to what he says in verse 2 when he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So, 
um, th there's a very important point for us here as Baptists, uh, because we don't have a hierarchy as Baptists. We don't have a pope up at the top, and then a college of cardinals under him, and then a group of bishops under them, and then a class of priests. We don't have that. Why? Because we don't see it in the Bible. What we see in the Bible are, are these three uh, terms, elders in verse 1, and then the word there at the beginning of verse 2, when it says shepherd, that's the language from which we get the word pastor. So an elder is one who is commanded to pastor. You could render it that way. And then that next phrase there, exercising oversight, that's the, the language that you get the word bishop from. Even, even the etymology of the English word bishop comes from this Greek word episkopos. And the pa ska, you know, it, it, it mutated and became bishop. That's, that's where the word comes from. So an elder is a pastor, is a bishop. In other words, you don't see in the New Testament, and I'm about to try to demonstrate this, you don't see in the New Testament that you've got pastors as sort of the lower rung, and then above them you've got bishops. That, that is an unbiblical aberration. That is a, an extra-biblical development. So this is why we don't have a hierarchy of authority uh, in, in Baptist churches. Um, th this church has a group of pastors, and um, we are organized a certain way, but we don't, I don't report to a bishop that's over a diocese, as they do, let's say, in the Anglican communion or in the Methodist arrangement or in the Roman Catholic situation. We don't have any of that. And, and it's because we don't see it in the Bible. So we're trying to do exactly what we see in the Bible, nothing less, nothing more. Now, let me show you, let me try to demonstrate that this is um, pervasive. Everywhere the apostles went, this is the way they set things up. So let me invite you to turn back to the book of Acts, and we will start in this, this little exploration of elders in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 11. And we're just kind of... We're, uh, we're just going to look at a number of statements here. Look at Acts 11, verses 29 and 30. Um, the setting is the church in Antioch um, is, is, has gotten word that the church down in uh, Judea, the church in Jerusalem, needs financial help. So Acts 11:29, the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And then verse 30, they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So in Jerusalem, there are elders over the church in Jerusalem. Uh, turn a page or two and look at Acts chapter 14, verse 23. And, and this is in the context here. This is after Paul and Barnabas have gone out, and they're going through all the cities where they've planted churches. And we'll consider in just a minute what they did when they planted churches. But as they go back through to visit those churches on their way home to Antioch, look at verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. So every one of these churches that they plant gets a group of elders over it. Note, note the plurality there. Elders in every church, not a single elder over a particular church, not one pastor per church, but a group of elders in every church. And then look at Acts 15 Verse 2, where again, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with these 
uh, people that they're having a theological disagreement with, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So again, in the church in Jerusalem, you've got these elders. And then look over at Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 17, we read, From Miletus, he, this is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So we got elders in Jerusalem. We got elders in all the churches in Asia Minor where Paul went about planting churches. And now in Ephesus, we've got elders in that church. And they come out to Paul. And look at what he says to them down in verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's that word bishops. Uh, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And so I just want to clarify here this morning that when we lay hands on Tyler and pray for him at the end of the service, we are not making him an overseer. We are not making him an elder. We are acknowledging that it is our perception that the Holy Spirit has done that. God does this. God is the one who makes elders and overseers. Note, too, that Paul in verse 17 sent and called the elders, and then he tells them that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers, bishops, right? Episcopoi. And then um, earlier in that verse, the ESV renders this, uh, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Uh, I think the NAS renders this more literally, and what it says is shepherd the flock. So there again, in this passage, you've got those three terms, uh, elder, pastor or shepherd, and then overseer. So I contend from the New Testament that an elder is a pastor, is a, is a bishop. So if you wanted to, you could address Matt as Bishop D'Amico, and he might like that. Uh, I don't know. Bishop Denny, um, Ryan Bishop, our, our friend who's down in Texas, his, he, we could call him Bishop Bishop, you know, and that would be biblically legitimate. Um, I could go on this way, and I could take you to, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we see qualifications set down for um, uh, elders and overseers and pastors. Denny has recently preached that passage. We could also go to Titus 1, where we would see that Paul instructed Titus, so Timothy's in Ephesus, we've got elders in Ephesus. Paul is instructing Titus on Crete, and in Crete, he's saying, uh, appoint elders in every place, every place there's a church, you're going to have a group of elders. And then later in the passage, a couple of verses later, he says, for an overseer, a bishop. So again, there's this equation between what an elder is and what a bishop is. Uh, we could go to James 5. And James, writing to all these churches, to the 12 tribes scattered among the dispersion, he says at the opening of his letter. And, and at the end of his letter, he says, is any one of you sick? Let him call the elders of the church. So James just takes it for granted. Anywhere there's a Christian hearing my letter, anywhere there's a church where this letter is going to be read in public, that church is going to have a group of elders. And everybody's going to know who they are. And if they get sick, they're going to know who to call uh, so that they can pray for them. We could go to Philippians 1.1 where where Paul uh, addresses the the elders and deacons at the church in in Philippi. Here's, Here's my point. Everywhere there's a church planted by the apostles or the disciples of the apostles, that church is led by elders. So, uh, I, I, Tyler, your task is to go plant churches, and I think you ought to do what we see in the New Testament. 
I think you ought to seek to see men raised up as elders who can pastor these churches with you. Now, what did they do? What did they do when they went about planting these churches? Well, again, I just want to walk through a number of statements from the book of Acts. Um, Let me draw your attention first. We're just going to hit these verses one after another because I contend that there is a pervasive theme that Luke means for us to notice about what the apostles did when they went about trying to carry out the Great Commission. So so here's the deal. Jesus has commissioned his followers, go make disciples of all nations. And I think, you know, at the end of of the book of Matthew, you you could ask yourself the question, how does he expect them to do that? And then if you're an early Christian, I would, I would imagine somebody would hand you the book of Acts and say, look at what they did. And then if we were to ask, okay, what does this mean about what we should do? Well, look at what they did. Okay, Acts chapter 1, verse, or Acts, I'm sorry, chapter 2, in verse 38, Peter has just preached the gospel. He's just announced the good news that God at long last has sent the promised Messiah. And the promised Messiah has paid the penalty for for the sins of God's people by being crucified on the cross. And then God has raised him from the dead, establishing that death has been overcome, sin has been overcome, guilt has been cleansed, and salvation is now available to everybody who will, look at what Peter says there in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 41. So those who received his word, they believed what Peter said. Those who received his word. And now, you know, I love children, right? Uh, But I would not be convinced that my three-year-old son could receive the word. I I love babies. I would not be convinced that little baby Osuna there could receive the word, okay? Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Uh, Look over a couple of pages to Acts chapter 8. They they go down to, uh, or they go up to uh, Samaria from Jerusalem. Look at verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So again, they, they go into a new place. They announce the gospel. And some people believe it. Look at verse 12 again. When they believed, look at the end of the verse, they were baptized, both men and women. So there's a, we're getting a pattern, aren't we? People believe the message, and they baptize those people. Look at verse, uh, look at um, down at the end of that chapter, verse 36. Uh, this is where Philip has accompanied the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's basically explained Isaiah 53 to the guy, right? So he's, he's laying out the, the crucifixion of Jesus, the sacrifice for sin that's been made. And um, verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water. Now, I don't know what body of water they saw. Maybe it was a stream. Maybe it was a pond. Maybe it was a lake. I don't know. But um, I, I take it that it was more than like a handful, okay? And um, so they, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, the reason I make this comment about handful is because there are traditions that see baptism as a kind of sprinkling or uh, something, something along those, those lines. Um, a, a couple of things against that. One, the, word, the Greek word baptize 
really what we've done is we've taken this Greek term, uh, baptizo, and its various forms, and we've just put it into English letters. If we were to instead translate the word, we would translate it something like immerse or plunge, okay? So you could translate this verse, what prevents me from being immersed? Or what prevents me from being plunged in the water? So the, the, the idea communicated is clearly that they're going to go down into the water and come up out of the water, which is what we read next, verse 38. He commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. He immersed him or plunged him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. So again, there's belief, and then there's baptized. This even happens for the apostle Paul. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 18. This guy, um, Ananias, has come and explained uh, about Jesus to Paul in the preceding verses. And in verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight, which is like a physical picture of what's happened, happening to the guy spiritually, right? Paul is understanding the gospel and he's been blinded by the glory of Jesus, and now the scales fall off his eyes, and he regained his sight, verse 18. Then he rose and was baptized. And um, look over at uh, chapter 10, verse 47. After Peter has proclaimed the gospel at Cornelius' house, uh, these Gentiles in Cornelius' house, they be believe the gospel. Verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It happens again um, in Acts 16, uh, twice. It happens again in Acts 18. It happens again in Acts 19. Um, I, I don't want to belabor this, but I'm trying to make this point that again and again, I mean, you can just, you know, Google uh, a, a Bible search. If you don't have a Bible search program of some kind on your phone, you can download the ESV Bible app on your phone, and then you can just put the word baptized, and it'll bring up all the occasions of it. And what you'll see over and over and over again is that people believe the gospel, and they get baptized. So here's what I submit we're sending foreign missionaries to do. We're not, we're not sending people out so that they can start cool coffee shops. Now, there may be a case for having a business platform in a foreign place that doesn't want to let you know, gospel workers in. And, and so you might make a case for a coffee shop, but we're not sending people out to pass out flyers to invite them to watch a video. Now, there might be a case, you know, for um, that being a good meth method of introducing people to the message, showing them the Jesus film. We're not sending people out. This, is, this could be controversial. We're not sending people out for them to take walks around cities where they pray for those locations. Okay, I think your prayer in your closet at your house is just as effective as a prayer walk. I think if you're praying in the name of Jesus by faith, it doesn't matter where you are and it doesn't add some kind of uh, oomph to the prayer for you to be walking around a particular place where there are a bunch of unbelievers. The Lord hears our prayers. And we're not Joshua circling the city of Jericho, right? That's, that's bad biblical interpretation to use that as the model. This is what we're sending people out to do. We're sending them out for them to explain the message of the good news of the Lord Jesus. The way that he, uh, he came because he loved people, and then he lived a righteous life that every one of us was obligated to live and failed to live, and then he took our sins upon himself, 
and he bore the full weight of God's justice against those sins. And because he was perfect, God raised him from the dead because death had no claim on him. We're sending people out to tell others that message. And then, praise God, when the Holy Spirit works in somebody's heart and they become convinced that's true and I need that because I'm a sinner, when that happens, we baptize those people. We don't sprinkle them. Uh, we don't... We don't say, oh, well, we got this person wet when they're a baby. No, this person has received the word. So just like we saw in the New Testament, uh, we're going to put them under the water. They're going to come up out of the water, and they're going to be incorporated into a church, a group of people that's going to be led by elders. Everywhere the apostles went, this is what they did. And everywhere they went... They preached the gospel, and they baptized new believers. And all the churches in all the places where the, where the gospel had gone and churches had been planted were led by elders. This is what we're sending uh, Tyler out to be and do, and this is why we're sending him out to be and do this. And we want to hear uh, what Peter has to say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about how this is to be done. So, uh, look with me back now at 1 Peter chapter 5. And I would just insert here. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you've been here for a while or if you're brand new here and you look at something that we do or you, you notice something that we don't do that you see in the New Testament, I want to know about it, okay? Uh, my ears are open. Come talk to me. If, if you can say to me, hey, look, look at what this passage says. Now look at what you do. These things don't line up. You will be serving me, and I will be helped. Now, I may be able to explain what I perceive as a reason why you're perceiving a discrepancy. I may have a good response for you, or I may, you may put me in a position where I'm ready to say, you're right, we need to fix that. But, you know, we're going to, I don't think the Bible forbids drums, right? And if you come to me and say, uh, yeah, got a good amen there. If you come to me and say, well, we don't see drums in the New Testament, right? But I'm, I'm not saying there are prescriptions for what the room needs to look like, what the lighting needs to be like. I, I don't think there are prescriptions of what time on the Lord's day we need to meet. So I think a lot of this is open to our cultural, um, uh, what's that word that people use that's just left my brain? Um, Contextualization. That's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah. A lot of this we can we can. So you know, I think if if Tyler goes to a certain country, it's perfectly appropriate for him to dress the way the people there dress. It's perfectly appropriate for him to use the kind of buildings that they have. It's per perfectly appropriate for him to adopt the kind of music that they sing there. And um, and yet there are these non-negotiables that the Bible uh, teaches on, like this. Look at First uh, Peter five one. I exhort the elders among you. And I, I want to, this always strikes me. Peter, Peter is the guy that the Lord Jesus said these words to. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Peter is the guy that was with the Lord Jesus when he was transfigured. Now, he kind of got rebuked on that occasion, but he was there. Peter is one of the three guys that was in the Garden of Gethsemane with the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Peter is the guy who was reinstated by the risen Lord Jesus and told three times, feed my sheep. And look at what he says of himself. Not, I exhort the elders among you as the apostle Peter or as the rock on whom the Lord Jesus is building the church. And he certainly doesn't say, 
as the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, right? Look at what he says. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. This guy is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture, and he is totally identified with the elders of the churches that he's addressing. This is remarkable humility. This is an example of the very kind of humility he's going to call for as the passage goes on. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He may be referring there to the Mount of Transfiguration, partaking of that future glory. And this is what he says here in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God, pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Um, so, so shepherd the flock, act like a shepherd does with his sheep, exercising oversight. And then what he's going to do is he's going to go through three, not, not this way, but that way statements. So the first one is um, not under compulsion, but willingly. Now, there's a, I think there's an inner logic that makes sense of every one of these instructions that Peter gives. And, and the inner logic, excuse me, is, um, I think you could summarize it like this, Peter's calling pastors to Christ's likeness. So think about the Lord Jesus. He wasn't dragged to the cross under compulsion, right? And he wasn't compelled to become incarnate because someone was forcing him to do this. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Um, in, you know, uh, Tyler, you are inconveniencing yourself significantly for these people that, that don't know you're coming and probably aren't all that interested in having you come. Um, but in the same way that the Lord Jesus willingly left a place of comfort and security and stability and safety and went to a place where he would not be treated with the honor and respect due him, and he did this not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have... This is the way we're being... You're being called to go and do this. And then he goes on, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Um, so, uh, you know, if you're, if you're after shame for gain, shameful gain, this is the wrong um, line of work. But praise God, the, the company that you're uh, going with is able to provide for you, um, to provide for your family, to make it possible for you to do this. And, um, and we want to pursue a heart of, of being content with what we have and being eager to serve people without respect to um, the, the monetary gain that might accrue to it. Verse 3, I think Peter's already been modeling this when he, when he identifies himself as a fellow elder. Verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So it's like Peter is, is exampling the kind of example that he's calling the pastors to live out. Don't domineer over those in your charge. Be an example to them. And, uh, you know, this, this term for examples is, uh, is a, the word that we uh, get this word typology from. Uh, being a type for the flock or being a pattern for the flock. I like typology almost as much as I like chiasms. Um, so so the, the idea here is we're pursuing Christ-likeness. We're pursuing the pattern or the type of behavior that Christ himself pursued. And then that type of behavior, hopefully, is going to be replicated by the members of the flock, where, where people see 
this person is laying down his life for me. This person is, is inconveniencing himself for my benefit. That's what Jesus did. That's how I want to live. We, we want to experience this love of God that compels us to go and do likewise. This is a, a really demanding set of instructions. It's a set of instructions that calls us out of our selfish worldliness and into an otherworldly Christ-likeness. And um, the, the obedience or the, the living out of these instructions is going to take the kind of motivation that Peter provides next. Look at verse 4. Look at this promise. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know, he, he had referred back up in verse 1 to the way that he was a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. That glory that is going to be revealed will be revealed when the chief shepherd appears. So consider that final awards ceremony. When the chief shepherd himself, the master of the universe, will rise to recompense his hosts. He's going to know hearts, judge justly, and he will act in righteousness. And this verse says that he's going to give rewards. This astonishing verse says that he will give to those who do the simple things that Peter has laid out here. I mean, this is, we're not talking about leaping tall buildings in a single bound, right? We're not talking about you make sure you get up at every morning at 5 a.m. and do your workout, right? No, we're talking about pursuing Christ-likeness. We're talking about not under compulsion but willingly, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering but as an example, laying down your life for people to proclaim the message to them that they might be brought into this ark of salvation, where, where deliverance is to be had from the floodwaters of God's wrath. And Peter says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's one path to that crown. It's the path of Christ-likeness. And, and this unfading crown, I think, so, so far surpasses any other reward that we could receive that comparisons are not even appropriate. I mean, we could think about novelists winning Pulitzer Prizes. We could think about scientists winning Nobels or soldiers receiving medals of honor. But the church is God's cause in the world. The church is Christ's own bride. The work done in service to the Lord Jesus in the church has eternal ramifications and pertains to all nations. So I contend that there is no institution more significant, no agenda more important, no task more urgent, no cause more noble, no message more true, and no office more dependent on the character of those who discharge it, because there will be no reward greater than the one that Peter describes here. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, there's a lot more that we could say about this passage. Um, 
Uh, but, but we've gotten our way through the instructions that Peter gives to elders. Everything that else that he says here, I think he, he begins to address other people in the church. So I just want to make a brief uh, few comments on these verses to us here at Kenwood. Okay, so he starts out in verse 5, and he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And then he, he lifts his eyes, it seems, off of the younger men in the congregation to the whole congregation when he says there in verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So there, there's two things there, I think, that apply to um, all, all of us in the church. Uh, we want to we put ourselves under the elders of the congregation of which we're a part, and we want to clothe ourselves toward, with humility uh, toward those elders and toward one another. How does this apply to our relationship with Tyler? Well, I think um, we want to commit ourselves to, try, to doing our best, to staying in touch with, with this dear couple. I almost said their last name. Saved at the, at the bell, so to speak. Uh, we want to we stay in touch with them. We want to pray for them. We want to reinforce these truths in their hearts. And, and here's what I would urge you in particular to pray. Pray that you remember in Acts 6 when they, when they got the deacons over the church, the, the apostles, these are the apostles, but I think this is really the job of the elders. They said, uh, we're going to put these servants over these tasks and we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And, and so we should pray in particular that through prayer and ongoing faithful study of the Word, these realities would crowd out all of the distractions and all of the discouragements and all of the, the impulses in our hearts that, that tempt us toward shameful gain or toward an attitude where we need to be compelled to serve somebody or toward a situation where we might we might feel like domineering over those under our charge. Pray that prayer and the ministry of the Word would form Christ-likeness in Tyler's heart. And then we want to stay up with him. Uh, verse 6, continuing to address the whole congregation, uh, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. When is that exaltation going to happen? When the chief shepherd appears, right? When the, the unfading crowns of glory are handed out. When the glory that is going to be revealed from verse 1 is, is made manifest. And the way that we want to humble ourselves is under the mighty hand of God. And we also want to do it, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking somewhere, someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Um, let me give you four ways... Um, Tyler, for you to resist the devil. Um, first, the first thing you want to do is believe this passage, that, that God would have you, that phrase back in verse 2, 
not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, believing that God would have you lay down your life for the people that you go to minister to, willingly to serve them. Uh, Second, believing that eagerly serving the flock, right? So I'm, I'm going to not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Eagerly serving the flock is more rewarding than money, more rewarding than any way that you could use a crowd of people to increase your platform, to help you get a good reputation. I mean, people, I think, I think people in ministry uh, think this way. If I get a big crowd, if I have a lot of success, everybody will want to know what I think about this thing, and then I'll be able to write the best-selling book. No, that's not what we're at. We're not after shameful gain. We're, we're trying to serve these people eagerly in Christ. Jesus doesn't use the church to get a better reputation for himself, right? Jesus is not using the church to get what he wants. So believing that God would have you lay down your life for these people willingly, believing that eagerly serving them is more rewarding than money. Third, trusting that as you typify Jesus to them, rather than lording it over them, so I'm just on these three not this way but that way statements, trusting that as you're an example of Christ's likeness to them, that will cause your influence to grow. You know, if, the, the, the ironic thing is that proud people, they think they're important, and everybody else around them thinks so obnoxious. <laughs> and, and humble people... We, we experienced somebody talking with us humbly. I had this experience this week. I had, I had what, what with more, well, I had the same conversation. One with a man that was, in my opinion, proud and obnoxious. And I came away from that con- conversation thinking, I don't ever want to talk with that guy about that issue ever again. And, and I may disagree with that, that guy and, and the way he comes at this issue, but more importantly, I disagree with him and the way he acts. I, I don't like that at all. I mean, that whatever. I had, I, had, I had a very similar conversation, same topics, same issues with this guy that came at it humbly. And, and my, my response to that was, brother, you could say the hardest things in the world to me, and I want to keep hearing it. You could confront me on, on, on ways that I disagree with you over and over and over again, and what's happening to me is I'm feeling inspired to be more godly and more Christ-like, and I want to meet with you as often and talk with you as often as I possibly can. This brother is gaining influence over me because of his humility. Uh, finally, fourth, believing that the unfading crown of glory is worth laying down your life for. It's worth laying down your life for people who have um, bad attitudes, people who have um, deeply seated belief systems that are going to take a long time to uproot, people that may be really unpleasant to be around, people that eat food that you may find distasteful. Um, I mean, we could go on and on. The smelly sheep are worth laying your life down for because of the unfading crown of glory and because because Jesus deserves to be honored by those people for whom he died. So I think this is what this is the way in particular from this passage you need to resist the devil. And and you need to be watchful 
because the adversary is going to prowl around and he's going to be looking for ways to distract you from the scriptures. He's going to be looking for ways to fill up your agenda so that you've got no time for prayer, so that this mindset slips away. Uh, Kenwood, what does it mean for us to resist the devil firm in our faith? Um, I'm going to tell a little story here about something I heard a pastor say. Sorry, this is totally off track, but this is as good a time as any to share this. Um, I was once in a, in a, in a meeting where um, the guy speaking, he took off his watch, you know, and he, and he set it on the, on the table like I do every Sunday, and, um, and, he, and he said that um, he, he heard of a man who was sitting with his son in church one day, and, and the son says to his father, uh, why, does, why does he take his watch off and set it? What does it mean when he does that every Sunday? And the father says to, him, to his son, it doesn't mean anything at all. <laughs> now, I'll conclude with these four things. What does it look like for us as a church to resist the devil from this passage? Um, it means for us to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the leadership of the pastors that God has given to us. And, and uh, the elders are not above this, okay? The elders are submitted to the council of elders, right? This applies to every Christian. I'm, we're not, I'm not reading you a passage that's convenient for me to impose something on you that doesn't apply to me, right? I am as submitted to the, the, the body of elders as the rest of the members of this congregation is. Satan wants us sniping at the elders. Satan would love to have us gossiping about elders' wives or doubting decisions that elders make. Satan would love to have us resisting these elders that we have, pointing out their faults, complaining about little nitpicky things that we see. The devil would delight in nothing more than to have that kind of division sown in our midst. So, so we, want, we want to embrace this passage, all of us. We want to embrace this Christ-likeness, and we want to humble ourselves and relate to one another fighting the good fight of faith, resisting the devil under the leadership of, of the pastors that God has put in place over us. And look at what Peter says in verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while. Um, it's interesting that Peter calls it a little while. After you have suffered a little while. This letter was probably written as persecution was heating up in the Greco-Roman world, as the, as the worship of the emperor was, was being applied in various ways to Christians, and they were beginning to suffer for the faith. After you have suffered a little while, in comparison with eternity, that's all it is. The God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If, if you were to ask me to summarize that in one word, I would say that's talking about a resurrected, glorified body. That's resurrection right there. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And in a resurrected body, anything that we sacrificed is going to be enjoyed for the glory of God. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I said I was going to close. I've got to read you this quote from Charles Spurgeon, the way that he described his ministry. Tyler, this is what you have the privilege to go out and do. Spurgeon said, 
I am occupied in my small way as Mr. Greatheart was employed in Bunyan's day. Talking about a character in Pilgrim's Progress. I do not compare myself with that champion, but I am in the same line of business. I am engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven. And I have with me at the present time, dear old Father Honest. I am glad that he is still alive and active. And there is Christiana and there are her children. It is my business as best I can to kill dragons and cut off giants' heads and lead on the timid and trembling. I am often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have the heartache for them. But by God's grace and your kind and generous help in looking after one another, I hope we shall all travel safely to the river's edge. Oh, how many have I had to part with there. I have stood on the brink, and I have heard them singing in the midst of the stream, and I have almost seen the shining ones lead them up the hill and through the gates into the celestial city. Father, would you bring us all safely to the banks of Jordan, through the waters, and Lord, would you make it so that there is a great host of people in this region where our dear brother and sister go, who join us there, singing your praise in the celestial city for the glory of your great name, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.